It's incredible how uh, quickly things change, isn't it? Just this past week, we learned of uh, the passing of, of two prominent and faithful Presbyterian pastors, Harry Reeder and Timothy Keller. Reeder was pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Early Thursday morning, he spoke to the Alabama Legislative Prayer Caucus. By 10.01 that same morning, he was dead after his car collided with a dump truck. Later that same day, Thursday afternoon, Tim Keller's son posted an update to Twitter telling followers that his father, who pastored for nearly three decades at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, and who'd been battling pancreatic cancer for the last three years, had been released from the hospital into hospice care. A day later, Tim Keller was dead. I was struck in reading one article just minutes after his death and how it spoke of him already in the past tense. Tim Keller was a prominent pastor in New York City. You've experienced something of the same phenomenon in your life, haven't you? Things and people that were once near you quickly have faded away. Last Mother's Day, you were able to celebrate your mom with her in your presence. This Mother's Day, you had to celebrate her mere memory. Last month, you had this amount saved up in your bank account. Suddenly, the same account has been depleted. The experience isn't just with tangible things, family members and finances, feelings and emotions share the same lots. Just last week, you were joyful, floating on cloud nine, content. This week, anxiety, depression, worry cloud your mind. You long for the relative peace and satisfaction and joy and happiness of a week ago, of a month ago, of a few years ago, the, the peace and joy and satisfaction you had in your marriage, in your singleness, at your job. But you can't get that feeling back no matter how hard you've tried. Life, it seems, is like one long game of craps at the casino. One moment you hit it big and have it all. But how quickly it can all be snatched away. Is there any meaning to it at all? If so, what is the meaning and where is God in it? And how can I trust in him at all times, even when things change quickly and for the worst? Friends, that's something of what we'll talk about from our passage this morning in Job chapter one. And some of the questions we'll explore throughout our time in this book as we begin a new sermon series this morning through the Old Testament book of Job. And so if you have your Bibles, return with me to the book of Job. If you're new to the Bible, if you kind of flip right in the middle of the Bible, you'll find Psalms, the longest book in the Bible, right before Psalms is Job. If you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, you can find it on page 4, 
17. Our general practice here at Temple Hills Baptist Church is to start a book of the Bible and to preach through that book consecutive, uh, consecutively until we finish that book. We, we just did that in Matthew over a number of years, stopping and starting, and now we're going to work our way through the book of Job over the next few weeks. And so over the next few weeks, I do invite you to, to read the book of Job on your own. Read it in one sitting if you have time. It's about an hour and 45 minutes. Read a few chapters a day, right? Find some time, some ways over the next couple of weeks to read through the book of Job. It will help you as you come to these sermons uh, and it will help you in your personal life as well. Job chapter one. I'm gonna read this chapter. I'm gonna come back and try to explain what I think this chapter means and to apply it to our lives. Job chapter one. We read, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and, and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people they are dead and I alone have escaped to tell you then Job arose 
tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Here's what I think is the main argument Job 1 is meaning to make. And so the main point of the sermon this morning. God is worthy of worship when you have everything and when you lose everything because he is your everything. God is worthy of worship when you have everything and when you lose everything because he is your everything. As we walk through this chapter, we'll hang our thoughts on three realities we see in the three scenes in this passage. Number one, God should be worshiped when things are good. We see that in verses one through five. Number two, God tests his people. We see that in verses 6 through 19. And number three, God should still be worshipped when things are bad. We see that in verses 20 through 22. Three realities we see in the kind of three scenes of the text. God should be worshipped when things are good. God tests his people. And God should still be worshipped when things are bad. Number one, God should be worshipped when things are good. And as we begin this book, there's no doubt that things are good. I mean, it's how the entire Bible starts off with things going well. We're introduced in this passage to a person who will serve as the main character of the entire book that's named after him. Look there at verse one. We read, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Striking in this opening verse is what's lacking. We don't know who wrote this book, who its author is, and we don't know when it was written. There are no historical markers in the text to help place its dates, to help place when its main character lived. There's no language like what you see in other Old Testament books that that such and such happened in the reign of such and such king or, or during the time of such and such events in Israel. We do know it's setting somewhat as we read that it's in the land of Uz, which Lamentations chapter 4 verse 21 tells us seems to have been related to Edom in a land to the east of Israel. Exactly where we're not sure. Neither are we sure of whether Job was an Israelite who moved to Uz or if he was a foreigner who worshipped hard Israel's God. There are a lot of unknowns, but what the author wants us to know is that there is a man named Job. And what made this man stand out in the land of us? Well, first and foremost, it was his character. That's often what the Bible highlights as most important. I mean, men and women like us, we look at outward appearances, but the Bible continually tells us that God looks at the heart. It's why in the New Testament... 
the qualifications for the biblical offices of elder and deacon in the local church are concerned not so much with gifting or skill or service, but primarily with character qualities. What kind of person is the man? Well, we learn four things about Job's person, about Job's character in verse one. First, we read the man was blameless. Now, blameless does not mean sinless. The first man, Adam, was created sinless, but by his voluntary transgression, he fell into sin, and every human being after him, including Job, has joined in his sinful rebellion, except one. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came into the world, who was both born sinless and lived sinless and died sinless. But he's the only one. No, no blameless here doesn't mean sinless, but it does mean genuine. It, it means one being full of integrity. The book of Genesis tells us that Noah was blameless in his day. The apostle Paul, who had at one point called himself the chief of sinners, also told the Thessalonians that his conduct among them was blameless. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, one of the qualifications for deacons is that they be blameless, people of integrity. Job wasn't the kind of man who lived a double life, who pretended to be one thing on Sunday, but you see him Monday and he's a totally different person. Job lived in such a way that he was above reproach. You could not bring a charge against the man that would stick to him. We also read that Job, secondly, was upright. In his dealings with people, Job was honest. He wasn't a shyster trying to get over on people. He wasn't using unscrupulous tactics or immoral dealings in order to get the upper hand. Job was fair and generous. And next, we learned that, that Job feared God. He loved the Lord intensely and wanted to please him with his life and honor and respect him in all that he did. And that's the meaning in the Bible when saints are said to fear the Lord. It's not a constant fear of shaking and trembling in fear of his punishment or judgment. Right? That kind of leaves God's people walking on eggshells around God as if God is some abusive husband or parent who could just fly off the handle at any time. I gotta fear God. No, when the Bible talks about men and women of God fearing God, it's an adoring reverence for the Lord that is so intense that it's almost like the shaking you feel with fear, right? One that gives one's entire life and every moment and movement of one's life to thinking about how I can honor God in this. Which flows into the fourth thing we read about Job. He he turned away from evil. You, you see, to love the Lord is to love what the Lord loves and to hate what the Lord hates. The Lord hates sin. He hates evil. And so Job constantly turned away from it. You see, you can't say you love God and love the thing the Lord hates. Right? Job realized when I say I fear the Lord or I love the Lord, it must mean that I cannot continue living in sin. 
And so Job actively abstained from every form of sin and evil. And when sin did find itself in Job's life, well, he turned from it even then to by repenting of his sins. That's what it means to repent, to turn from your sin. This is what marked Job's life. You might be tempted to read this description of Job in verse 1 and think to yourself that he was some kind of superhuman. I mean, who's really blameless and upright? Who really fears God and turns away from evil? But remember the first words that open this passage. Job is just a man. A good man, a godly man, but a man of the same nature as us. What we read here are not details of some superman, nor are they exaggerations of this man. What we read here is what should mark every man and every woman who is a true believer and follower of God. Everyone who's devoted themselves to God. Devotion to God should shape our lives. So I wonder would such descriptions made here of Job be able to be said of you and me? And which elements of the description here would be missing and why? Are you a man of integrity? Not playing one role for church folks, another role for people in your house, another role for folks on your job, another role for people at your school. People can't get a, a, a finger on, on who you really are because you're always changing up. Are you, are you a person that actually has some values? Who actually walks around with some dignity? Do the public you and the private you match? Are you an upright woman striving to be honest in all your dealings? Is your life marked by fear of the Lord and turning away from evil? Now, I think it's easy for us to read this opening verse with disdain, making excuses that this can't be true of anybody. We make those excuses often because it's not true of you. Right? Like, ain't nobody like that because it shines a spotlight on how you ain't really upright. You, you notice how we do that, right? We kind of devalue anybody. Anytime somebody starts speaking too well to somebody else, right, we're looking for flaws, not because there's real flaws to be found, but because there's real flaws to be found in us. It is ugly, right? No, no, no. We, we're not to, to, to read verse 1 with disdain. Don't read it and use it to make excuses. Use it instead as a model, as an example of what the good life under God looks like. Worshiping the Lord and serving him in every sphere of life. Job, though not perfectly, consistently lived the type of life God created people to live. And the Lord blessed him. <laughs> I mean, that's what you expect, right? That's what many teach. Serve God faithfully and the Lord rewards abundantly. Well, the two aren't always tied so closely together, at least not in this life. But early on, we see that Job has been richly blessed by God. Verse 2 tells us that Job had seven sons and three daughters. Before any of his possessions is listed, the pinnacle of Job's abundance is seen in his children. I think it makes the point that people are more valuable than possessions. Uh, 
human lives worth more than stuff. But we need the Bible to reset our priorities. I mean, we live in a day where the lives of children especially are so undervalued. Every year, nearly a million unborn babies are aborted. Not because of medical emergency or potential harm to the mother, but simply for convenience. A child or another child would be a burden. But listen to what the Bible says. A child, every child is a blessing. Psalm 127 says children are a heritage from the Lord. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Here, Job is shown first and foremost to be blessed by the full quiver the Lord has given him. Ten children, seven sons, three daughters from God Almighty. Along with his large family, Job has a large fortune, which is demonstrated by his large flock of animals. In the agrarian society that defined the ancient Near East, in the culture of the Old Testament, one's wealth was seen not so much in the money he had in his account or the Bitcoin, whatever. I don't even know how you do the Bitcoin stuff. Right? It was seen in the number of animals he had, which could produce ongoing for him. And Job had many. I mean, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, and 500 more donkeys, and many, many servants and shepherds who tended to them all. I mean, this man, Job, ran something of a large operation, and he was very well off. I mean, the end of verse 3 tells us that Job was the gulp, the greatest of all the people of the East. In Job, we, we find that rare breed of great godliness and great wealth. Centuries later, Jesus would say it was hard for a rich man to make it into heaven because his great possessions would often choke out his desires for God. But not so with Job. He had a lot, but his heart was still set on the Lord. Verses 4 and 5 make the point all the more. As we read of the close-knit connection of, of Job's children, how the sons would hold a feast on their day, perhaps annually on their birthday, and they'd invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. There's nothing explicitly or implicitly sinful in these gatherings. Yes, they were drinking, verse 13 and verse 18 would later specify wine, but that in and of itself is not sinful. There's no hint of drunkenness nor debauchery mentioned here. And yet still notice where Job's heart is in making sure his children were right in God's sight. Verse 5 tells us that, that when these feasts were over, Job would, would send for his children and, and consecrate or purify them. He'd rise early. He'd be eager and offer burnt offerings as a means to temporarily atone for any sins that they might have committed. We read at the end of verse 5, Job said, It may be that my children, some way, in some form or fashion, during one of these feasts, it may be that they have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. 
There was nothing outwardly in their actions that was sinful, but Job's priority was on his children's hearts being as blameless and upright as devoted to God's as his was. Children, this is the kind of parent you want. You want a father and a mother who themselves are godly and who pray and pry into your life and poke at your heart to ensure that you yourself are godly. I mean, I know how it is to be a teenager with a Christian parent. You feel like that life is the pits. All there are are restrictions. All there is is religious talk. All that gets played on the radio is gospel music. Yeah, even gospel rap. Like you, you're like, oh God, let me just listen to some regular rap. You might want a different set of priorities for your parents. You might consider your parents parents to be too serious and always talking about spiritual matters. But that's because there's nothing more important than your relationship with God. You can't bank off their relationship with God that you might get some crumbs from it. Your parents know that I love the Lord, but my love for the Lord is not transferable. And so they pry into your life and they try to give you a motto to live by and try to make it their aim to see that you are sinning in word and deed and speech. And behind the scenes, your parents are wearing their knees out and their lungs out, pleading to the Lord, keep this boy, keep this girl from sinning. That's why they labor hard. To implant in you a love for the Lord. Consider yourself blessed to grow up in a home where the Lord is honored. The time I couldn't stand my mom talking about all that Christian stuff. Always playing Mahalia Jackson and Sweet Honey in the Rock and the Belleville Acapella Choir and the Fairfield Four. You know what goes on my radio in my car right now? Mahalia Jackson and the Fairfield Four. Sweet Honey in the Rock. Parents, Play the long game. Don't care about catering to your kids' desires now. By the Lord's grace, he might save those wretches, and they will call you blessed for staying firm on the Lord. Notice how this opening section of verses 1 through 5 is bookended by, by focus on one standing before God. In verse 1, it was Job's character and relationship with God that was commended. And in verse 5, Job is focused on his children's relationship with God. Everything we read in verses 1 through 5 is is all good. It's as close to perfect as possible. But a full life, a full family, a full fortune have not tempted Job to forget God as is so often the case. No, where is Job's heart set? Not on self-promotion, not on self-interest, not on selfish ambitions to get even more. Job's heart is set on serving the Lord and worshiping him. Because God should be worshiped when things are good. The description of the good life that Job enjoyed sets the stage for a drastic turn of events, which leads us to point number two, 
where we see, secondly, that God tests his people. Point number two, God tests his people. And notice the, the very earthiness of verses one through five. Hey, Job has children and flocks and servants and great wealth. All right, descriptions of, of a good life on earth. But then look at how in verses 6 through 12, we're transported to an entirely different realm. A spiritual realm where God presides and angels and Satan are present. It's a striking scene sending the message that yes, verses 1 through 5 descriptions of an amazing man's life on earth are really real. But so too, at the same time, verses 6 through 12 descriptions of a life and activity in a spiritual realm with spiritual beings is just as real. I think that's important because many of us, if we were honest on a day to day basis, live as this is as if it's only a verses one through five world that exists. Matters of family and business and money and success dominate our thinking. A spiritual world with spiritual powers seems, if not outright silly, then simply abstract and distant. But we need passages like this one in Job to wake us up to realities that we need to know exist. Passages that discuss a spiritual realm. It's why we need passages like what our brother Joseph preached for us a few weeks ago in Ephesians 6, where the apostle Paul reminded us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in this present age and in the heavenly places. There's stuff going on on the earthly places and there's stuff going on in the heavenly places and perhaps what's initially troubling to us in this passage is that the stuff going on in the heavenly places seems to be against us against someone as godly and as good as even Job and from the God whom Job so deeply serves and loves Verse 6 introduces us to the heavenly scene where we read the, the sons of God and Satan present themselves before God. That term, the sons of God, when you find it in the Bible, refers to heavenly beings or what we'd call angels. You see the term in Genesis chapter 6 verse 2 and in Psalm chapter 89 verse 6. You see it later here in the book of Job in Job chapter 38 verse 7. These Heavenly angelic beings are more mighty than humans. They're above us, but far below God. Right? So, so, so you, you think about classes of people, there's humans, and then there's spiritual beings that are above humans, angels, right? And even evil angels, demons, right? So they're a little exalted. They have more power, more reign, but they have far less power and reign than God. Right. So, so no one equals up to him. Right. They are real. They are mighty, but they are not divine. They are under God. I mean, notice here, even in the passage, their submission to God, they they present themselves before the Lord, reporting to him about their activities. And present also is the Satan. The word just means the adversary. It's the devil. 
He is a very real being with very real power and very real might. But he exists on the outskirts of the normal heavenly court. I mean, notice how he's distinguished, even slightly, as, as a more distant member of this proceeding. The pastor tells us that he also came among them, right? He doesn't have the same access to God, the same closeness to God as even the angels do. But the devil is there as well, bringing a report. I wonder if even this, this little brief description of what's going on in heaven in verse 6 is, is a little comforting to you. I mean, we, we know the devil is dangerous. But this passage tells, tells us and shows us that he does not have free reign. He's not some kind of free agent. He must present himself to God as one under God as well. In verse 7, the Lord questions the devil as to his activity. And Satan responds that he's been roaming the earth, walking up and down on it. It reminds us of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, where we read that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Perhaps you have questions as to why God, who is against evil, would allow this evil one, Satan, to even exist. To have such access and activity in the world that God created. Well, the answer, which might not totally satisfy you, but that the Bible drives home, is that even Satan has a purpose in God's glorious plans. God has so designed the universe that evil, that even evil and sin and the evil one are used to accomplish his plans, but in such a way that God is neither the author nor the approver of evil, but he is over evil, restraining evil, using evil, even deploying the evil one before one day he ultimately destroys him. The Lord in verse eight, incredibly sets Satan's focus from his worldwide wandering to one specific person. I mean, you think that God would offer up the most crooked, corrupt fellow. Hey, let me give you, give me, let me give you somebody who you should go after, right? <laughs> if you're going to pick one person, why in the world would you pick Job? But the Lord does. In verse 8, the Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. The narrator of this book up in verse 1 was not overstating things. He wasn't being a flatterer of Job when he talked about him. Notice how God's description of Job here matches exactly the narrator's. God, said, God says he was a good and a godly man. So why then does God have his sights set on Job? Why does he set Satan's sights on Job? The one person out of everybody who serves God so faithfully. Well, because God is constantly working to do all things for his glory and his people's goods. His people's good. And he often accomplishes both his glory and the good of his people. He often accomplishes those dual tasks through the one tool of suffering. Of testing his people. 
I mean, think of God's servant Abraham who served God's served God faithfully, but was severely tested. Charged to sacrifice his son, his only son, Isaac, before the Lord finally intervened and, and stepped in. But, but not before Abraham's faith shined brightly, giving glory to God. Uh, think of the son that God sacrificed. His only beloved son, Jesus Christ, who lived not just a blameless, but a sinless life. But again, whom God put forward, the Bible tells us, to be a propitiation, a sin-atoning sacrifice for us by his death. He put Jesus up to be tempted and tormented by Satan. I mean, we just finished in Matthew after Jesus Christ comes out of the baptismal waters and the the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What if God is pleased in his son that he's going to give his son a pleasant life? He rises up from the water and the Lord, the father says, this is my beloved son. And the very next verse says he sends him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Lord tests the one he loves for our good and for his glory. God tests even the most faithful, not for our harm, but for our good and for his glory. So it is not wrong of God or contrary to God's ways to put up faithful Job here to be tested. To ask Satan, have you considered my servant Job? God is confident of Job's faithfulness, of his fidelity to him, even through the worst of circumstances. Satan, however, is far more cynical. Notice in verse 9, Satan asks, does Job fear you? Does he love you? Does he serve you for nothing? No, that joke ain't serving you for nothing. You done put a hedge around him. You've blessed everything that he has. You've blessed him in every way and increased his possession. In the original Hebrew that the Old Testament is written in, the you in, in verses 9 and 10 is expressed emphatically, almost like a charge. You, you gave him a sweet life. You done brought Job up with a silver spoon in his mouth. You've been a helicopter parent shielding Job from every potential danger. You made it impossible for Job to do anything but worship you. But it's all superficial, says Satan. Job don't really love you. And look at his bold assertion in verse 11. Job telling God what's going to happen. Job says, stretch out your hand. And finally, for the first time in your life, touch him. Strike him. Touch all that he has and take it away. And I guarantee you, as soon as you take what that man has, that man who's been so loving and fearful and going to church every Sunday and giving tithes, that man going to curse you to your face. He going to damn you right to your face. Now, scratch a little bit and dig behind Satan's words here. What animates them is a deep belief that God himself is not worthy of any worship because of his intrinsic beauty, because of his intrinsic goodness, because of his intrinsic glory, his intrinsic holiness. In other words, God isn't worthy of being worshiped simply because who he is in and of himself. 
People only worship God, says Satan, because of what they can get from God. Because of God's gifts. And if God would just stop playing perpetual Santa Claus and dry up the well of wealth, even the seemingly most committed people like Job would walk away from him. Now, before we almost instinctively, because we in church, put on our cloaks of piety and immediately push back, we need to admit that too often Satan's claims here seem to be true. I mean, you probably know people who've walked away from the faith. The fancy term now is deconstructed. Who've destroyed their faith, who've cursed God when some trial or tragedy hit. But what about yourself? How have you responded to God when success is far less frequent than failure? When money or ministry opportunities or marriage prospects remain low? Is your reverence for God still strong? Your zeal for him still present? Does your love for him still burn brightly? Let's make it even more pointed. How is your heart with God right now? What place does he hold in your heart? Do you love him? Even as his gifts seemingly dry up? Or are you on a slow trajectory to one day getting to where Satan thinks Job will get? Cursing God to his face. Friends, take some time this week to examine your hearts. To see if your joy in and love for God are tied only to what he gives you and not to who he is. Invite others in to help examine your life. That's what we have a church for. That's what we have church members for, to help us see blind spots, to, to process where we are with us to spur us and provoke us on to faithfulness and purity. Pray that God would grow your desires for him, that, that he'd grow your delight in him and not simply in what he provides. The Lord in verse 12 takes Satan's challenge. Not because he was forced to and, and not because he just wanted to toy with Job's life. But because he has purposes he's going to accomplish in and through Job. Remember, it was God. Not Satan who first brought up Job. God is the one who said, have you considered Job? God has plans to prosper his servant even through suffering. And so God tells Satan that he has authority to touch all that Job has. But not to touch his person, not to touch his body. Again, just showing that God has complete control and authority and that the devil's authority and power are restrained and derived. Now, now it's crucially important to note here that Job knows nothing of what's happening in heaven. Job's friends who will be introduced to in a, in a chapter or so know nothing of what's happening here in heaven. They have no knowledge of this dialogue between God and Satan and so absolutely no insight as to why the things are happening in Job's life that do happen. 
In other words, Job goes through this entire book in the dark. Only we, the readers, have been given this kind of backstage sneak peek access to heaven. To know what the Lord's purposes and plans are. Verse 13 transports us back to life on earth in the land of of us. Where Job and his family are enjoying the sweet life. Maybe it's a, a Saturday evening. Verse 13 says Job's children have gathered in the older brother's house for, for one of their, their feasts. And perhaps Job is, is at his own house. After a rewarding day, sitting, sitting out on his porch, reclining in his favorite rocker, enjoying the pleasant evening and, and sipping on a tall glass of the perfectly sweetened glass of iced tea. Life is sweet. Y'all fit in the blanks. Y'all want to be something different, okay? We in a Baptist church, y'all. <laughs> life is gravy. Job is enjoying life. Family good. Finances good. Feeling good. Uh, until, in, in a distance, Job, Job sees a, a figure running towards him. The sight doesn't bother Job. He, he figures it's probably one of his servants eager to bring news of, of yet another prosperous day out in the fields. <laughs> I mean, all I do is win. <laughs> Until the servant gets closer and Job reads his face and senses his urgency. Verse 14, the messenger comes running into Job and says, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians came and took the animals and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Out of the corner of his eye, Job sees another figure coming towards him. Verse 16 says that as the first servant was yet speaking, another servant came running in with more news. The fire, the fire of God from, fell from heaven. Probably referring to lightning. And it burned up the, the, the sheep and the servants, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 17, while he was yet speaking, another runs in saying, the Chaldeans, they, they formed three groups, and they made a raid. Uh, the camels and took all, and, and they killed the servants, and I alone have escaped to tell you. We can read these accounts in such quick succession, and because we're so removed from them in time and so removed from them in experience, we can read them and not feel the full weight of them. But just stop and consider here this man who we've been told was the greatest in all the East, the richest, the wealthiest person in all the East, has just lost instantly all his wealth, all his possessions. It's learning suddenly that all the money you saved up and placed in investments is gone due to Madoff's Ponzi scheme. All the assets you worked so hard to accumulate are all snatched away. And you have no possible way to make it back. All your earning potential is gone too. All those animals were always money in the bank because they could always make me more money. All of them are gone. I have no money and no way to make more money. This is a devastating day. All the possessions Job had have vanished. 
And yet, and yet, at the end of verse 17, there's still a real bright glimmer of hope. Job probably thought, after hearing all this news, he probably thought, at least I still have my most prized possession. I still got my kids. About a month ago, some, some young boys ran through our neighborhood at about 4.30 in the morning. We, we, we caught it on, on, on ring later. On a kind of late night crime spree, uh, we had the, the doors unlocked on, on two of our cars. And so they went into our cars and, and took some stuff. And, and they ended up going to some of our neighbor's houses. And they stole one of my neighbor's cars. And as mad and as violated as we all felt, uh, my neighbor sent me a text the next day with a needed reminder. He said, I'm just glad none of our families were hurt. We can replace things. That's likely how Job felt. Though he didn't see a path forward as to how exactly it might happen, he he probably thought, well, they're just things. As, as, as hard of, of a hill as it will be to climb to get back to that place, we can replace things. We can't replace people. At least my kids are still safe. But then verse 18. While the previous messenger was still relaying news of the destruction from the Chaldeans, Another messenger came. But everything's gone. <laughs> what other news do you possibly have to bring? Your kids. Your sons and daughters. You know how they always are spending time at the, the brother's house for a feast? Well, they were at the oldest brother's house. For, for one of the feasts and a great windstorm or a tornado came and it, sh- it struck the house. Okay, yeah, yes. And the house collapsed down on the children. And they're all dead. Every single one of your sons and all of your daughters, all 10 of your children are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Oh, the agony of Job. Friends, if this much suffering happened in one person's lifetime, we consider them to have a horrible life. This happened in the span of a day. Oh, the horribleness of this day. How quickly it all crumbled. When the day started, Job had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 oxen, 500 donkeys, 10 children, and many, many servants. By the end of the day, Job has zero sheep, zero camels, zero oxen, zero donkeys, only four servants of the many, many more. It was only a few, four, who will remain left standing and absolutely no children. Job, to put it lightly, has been severely tested. 
like no man up to that point. How will he respond? Well, that brings us to our third and final point where Job shows us that God should still be worshipped even when things are bad. God should still be worshipped when things are bad. Verse 20 tells us, after hearing this barrage of bad news, that Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. These are all things associated with grief in the ancient world. You see, Job is a real person. And this book is a real book. It has no interest. The book of Job has absolutely no interest in presenting a devotion to God detached from life and real experiences and real emotions. Job is not some pie in the sky theologian who just makes assertions about God and religion and to protect those assertions presents himself as always put together, unaffected by what happens in life because God is sovereign. This man is no stoic who remains unmoved even by the deepest tragedies. No, Job mourns. He cries, he weeps, and he worships. The end of verse 20 tells us Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. Friends, any religion, any supposed presentation of Christianity, that constantly tries to separate those two things, that constantly tries to separate real feelings and faith, that constantly tries to separate grief and godliness, is a Christianity, a religion that is foreign to the Bible. You do not have to suspend or suppress your sorrows to worship God. You can worship God in your sorrows. I hope you understand that even as it relates to corporate worship. You can and should come here and worship God together with your brothers and sisters, even when life is messy and when you feel miserable. You don't need to masquerade as if everything is okay. Deep hurt and deep worship are not incompatible. We'll see that time and time throughout this book. We see it here in this passage. Job is deeply hurt. He's deeply grieving. He shows it. He's not embarrassed or afraid to tear his robe and to shave his head. He don't care what the fake religious people say about, you ain't really trusting God in this. No, he's deeply hurt, but he's also deeply trusting in the Lord. So that when he finally opens his mouth, he hadn't said nothing to all these servants. When he finally opens his mouth after receiving all this bad news, he doesn't curse the messengers for relaying such horrible news to him. You know, sometimes we attack the wrong folks. Neither does Job curse God. Contrary to what Satan assuredly said would happen. You take everything away, Job won't curse you to your face. Instead, the Bible tells us that Job blesses the Lord. He says in verse 21, naked. <laughs> I came in this joint with nothing at all. Naked I came from my mama's womb and naked I'm going up out of here. 
the Lord gave and the Lord will take away. And what is my response? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job acknowledges God's essential goodness even when everything around you turns bad. The Lord was good to give Job life in the first place. The Lord Lord was good to give Job any of the things he ever had. He ain't owed Job a drop of, of money. He didn't owe Job any children. He don't owe us anything. Everything that Job has and everything that we have is all in the category of undeserved gift. He came into the world with nothing. And yet the Lord fills all of us with so much. But because the Lord gives, the Lord is also able to take away. The Lord who gave has a sovereign right to take away. And Job knows that if God takes away, even in that he must have good purposes. And so Job concludes, blessed be the name of the Lord because he is good all the time. Friends, you might read this and you you think to yourself, how do I get there? Because I ain't going to lie, sometimes I, in, in my mind, I, pray out, I play out some of the worst scenarios, right? Maybe I'm, yeah, I don't want to be, mean to be morbid, but sometimes when my kids and my wife leave the house and they're all together, I, I just play out, Lord, will, will I still trust you if they don't make it home? I, I try to, we try to tell our kids, I don't want to scare them, but I try to tell our kids, we want you to trust in mommy and daddy's Jesus, even if something horrible happens to mommy and daddy. It's not an indictment on God. Right? Sometimes we try to play that out, right? But as we talked about on Sunday school this morning, we don't know how we respond. So you look at how Job did actually respond, you ask yourself, how did you get there? How do you have that kind of response with that kind of hurt? How did Job have it? Well, he'd cultivated a relationship with God all throughout his life. You see, you cannot wait until tragedy hits and think you'll have this kind of determined devotion of God still. No, you've got to develop a deep relationship with God over time. That's why cracking out of that bed and creaking those knees over to some place in your house to open up the Bible, even when you don't want to, is never wasted. Because you're building up a reservoir of Bible verses and Bible promises for the day of testing that will surely come to all of God's people. That's why there is never a wasted Sunday of gathering with God's folks. Whether it's 50 or 5 of us here, the Lord is worthy of being praised. And you absolutely start setting yourself a consistent example that when I feel like it and when I don't feel like it, when it's sunny and when it's raining, when everybody there and when nobody's there, I'm going to worship God. There's a kind of pattern that you have to start somewhere in the Christian life so that when the Christian life goes totally downhill, when the bottom seems to fall out, that your faith don't fall. Because you've cultivated this relationship with God all your life. So we're reminded in the first five verses of Job's piety, his devotions to God. Look at the end of verse five. Thus, Job did continually 
The man led a lifestyle of devotion to the Lord so that when the Lord seems his most distant and when life seems the most devastating, the, the, the man Job can say the Lord is still to be blessed. He can still trust him. He can still love him even if he didn't know why all this tragedy was suddenly happening to him. And friends, whatever has happened in your life, whatever loss you've experienced, you can still love and trust the Lord too because he has not changed. He is still a good God. We know that or can know that amazingly even more than Job because Job had a limited view of just how amazingly good and loving God was on the front side of the cross. But on the other side of the cross, we see God's deep, deep love for us. We see God's amazing, committed care for us. We see the amazing graciousness of God in that he gave the Lord gave, Job said, he looked back all his life, he replayed all the things the Lord gave and all the times with the Lord. He said, the Lord is good. Well, we can say the Lord gave and look not just at the experiences and the stuff we've had. We can say the Lord gave his only begotten son for a sinner like me. The Lord gave his only begotten son a better picture of Job. The Lord Jesus had everything. He had the whole world in the palm of his hands. He had equality with God and majesty in heaven, but the Lord Jesus didn't grasp onto it. He loosened his grip and the Lord Jesus gave up everything for us that we might have him. Lord Jesus loved us so much that he was willingly sent by the heavenly father to suffer and die for the sins of all those who trust in him. The Lord Jesus loved us so much that he left heaven's praises to come to a filthy earth to people who rejected him every day and in every way who spit in his face and who ultimately crucified him. He loved us so much that on the cross when the father was pouring out all his wrath that was reserved for your and my sins that Jesus didn't say enough I'm done. He stayed on the cross so that we might have no more of God's judgment, but only God's grace. So that we might, like Job, when all of life seems bad, we might say the Lord gave his only begotten son. And so blessed be the name of the Lord because he can't take away my salvation. He might take away everything else. He can't take away my salvation. He's pledged his love to me. He's shown his love to me. And so, Lord, keep me even when everything else is missing. You see, we can, too, worship God loudly because the Lord has loved us deeply. He gave his only begotten son to save us from eternity in hell. If he would give such a great eternal gift, we can deeply worship him even when he takes away temporal gifts. We don't need to question his love, his fidelity. His care for us, he hasn't changed even though circumstances may. Saints, God is worthy of worship. When we have everything and when we lose everything. Because he is our everything. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for 
your word that instructs us, that rebukes us, that encourages us, that comforts us, that sobers us up, and deepens our attachment to Jesus. Help us, Lord, to devote all of our lives to you, to love you with all our hearts, even when all of life seems empty. We pray this in Jesus' name.